0: If you would, please turn to Mark 9 once again. There's a few things I want to still bring to your attention in this this passage. In fact, already um, I know that next week I am going to also preach, but more specifically, uh, focused on the end of verses 9 through 13. So, But nevertheless, if you would turn to Mark 9, I had originally sort of tried to bring us back since we were off last week in terms of the continuity, sort of making this a review, but it turned out to be a review and more. <laughs> okay. So chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, please listen carefully to God's holy word. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took him with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to him, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he to, to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt but i tell you that elijah has come and they did not did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him congregation let's pray our lord and our god what a glorious vision but also at this time those who witnessed it are without complete understanding. We ask, O God, that as we stand here many centuries since this great event that we this morning would have eyes to see, ears to hear, And hearts to understand. Help us, O Lord, to live the gospel in Christ's name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our recent messages have given much attention to the messianic secret. We have noted it strongly as presented by Christ himself after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 8, verse 30. Yes, Christ's directive is that the disciples are not to tell anyone that he is the Christ. Yes, Jesus wants his identity to be a secret that he is the Christ, the Messiah, at this point in his earthly ministry. Then we noticed in our last message on Christ's transfiguration that as Jesus, Peter, James, and John descend from the mountain, Jesus instructs those three disciples to not tell anyone what they had just seen, chapter 9, verse 9 as we think about Christ's directive after Peter's confession and after Christ's transfiguration, let us also be reminded that the secrecy about Christ's redeeming activity is an important characteristic that is accented in the flow of Mark's narrative, a characteristic which Mark accepts accents, excuse me, more than any of the New Testament gospels. Yes, it is not uncommon for Jesus to instruct people not to tell others about his supernatural activity upon them. As we have pointed out All these circumstances of Jesus telling people to remain silent in the first section of Mark's gospel chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 8 verse 26 reaches its climax. Its climax in his specific engagement with his hand-picked disciples at Caesarea Philippi. As we have strongly highlighted As Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Christ begins to unfold exactly what the messianic secret is. But the reason that Christ continues to enforce the secret, that the disciples are not to tell anyone that he is the Christ, and also that Peter, James, and John are not to tell anyone what they just witnessed concerning the transfiguration is because the disciples are not understanding the path which Christ has been decreed to pursue by his heavenly Father for the sake of these disciples and for sinners whom he will redeem. His church. Yes, Jesus is now entering the second section of Mark's gospel with an intensive training session of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, the Son of God, who is inaugurating the arrival of the good news of the kingdom of God for those who will repent of their sin And believe in Jesus Christ. How is this going to be accomplished? Well, the disciples need ears to listen, they need eyes to see the amazing supernatural path of redemption that Jesus, the Christ, is taking. Congregation, we must not sit here this morning not hearing our heavenly Father's direct words to all of us at the transfiguration. Listen to him. Listen to Christ. No more ears without faith in which the words of Jesus are are going in one ear and out the other. No more blindness controlled by hard hearts. Congregation, are you listening to Christ? Are you listening to Christ? Are you entering into seeing Christ with hearts And eyes of faith fastened upon Christ's accomplished acts of redemption. The secret of Christ's redemption is clearly placed before the disciples and all of us this morning from chapter 8 verse 31 through chapter 9 verse 13. The entire scope, the entire scope of Christ's redemptive activity is mapped out from his death, resurrection, and ascension to his final glorification at his second coming. Specifically, the first great event of the messianic secret is drilled into our heads, And hopefully, congregation, it is being drilled into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer many things. Be rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Be killed. And after three days, rise again. Chapter 8, verse 31. In terms of the unfolding of Mark's narrative, the disciples are not understanding this path for Jesus. But now, since we know, we know that it has actually occurred, that it has actually occurred in history, we must hope that none of us who are here this morning are missing are missing the truth of 831 of 831 then what will be the second the second great event in the history of redemption the second coming of Christ in his final glorification With all his radiant splendor, which is previewed before Peter, James, and John. As Christ on the mountain is pictured in all his supernatural glory. Now hear this. If you are a follower of Christ. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ. If you are a disciple of Christ, then how is such a follower committed to Christ supposed to live? What does a true believer's life in Christ look like? What does it look like? What does your life look like? Now pause pause and think for one second Christ is now concentrating on instructing his disciples about the entire scope of his new covenant redemptive activity as the son of man that is the scope being to repeat to repeat From his death, resurrection, and ascension, 831, to his glorification at the second coming, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. Now the reason I ask you to pause and to think is for you to seriously reflect upon the question that I have asked you. To repeat, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a disciple of Christ, then how is such a follower committed to Christ supposed to live? What does the true believer's life in Christ look like? Concentrating. On the bookends of his redemptive activity, Christ himself, in the context of the revelation of the fulfillment of the covenant of grace, instructs every single believer living within those bookends, and that includes us here in 2023. How we are to live between Christ's accomplished redemption, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and the day of his final glorification. Those are the two bookends in terms of where we are. The life of The life of the believer, the life of the church, is very clearly defined by our Christ, the Son of Man, upon blessing or judgment. The true disciple, the true church, lives the life of self-denial, By taking up their own cross of suffering, servanthood, and self-sacrifice for the sake of Christ. Yes, the true believer, the true church of Christ will lose their life of commitment to self and the world of self-indulgence in sin. For the sake of living, of living a life before the world, that their own world of sin has been crucified to the cross of Christ. And now, the new self, the new person in Jesus Christ, lives in the freedom of Christ's resurrection, looking forward to one's glorification. All of this occurs in the believer and in the true church by virtue of the gift, the sovereign gift of good news in Christ. Yes, the gospel comes alive by grace and faith in each of us who believe through the power of Christ's spirit, applying the benefits of Christ's redemption into our lives. The flow of the text before you is clear. Those who live the life of discipleship, those who live in the sharing of Christ's suffering, will rejoice when Christ's glory is revealed. Listen carefully to the same Peter that is in our text here this morning. Listen to the same Peter who writes his epistles. Here, the transformation of this man, the one who has learned how to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ in that first epistle that he writes is clearly evident to the church. In one verse, please meditate on this one verse and see this. In one verse, Peter brings his readers into the exact movement of being a true disciple of Christ and the reward of glorification in Christ. And that one verse is found in 1 Peter 4.13. I want you to see the profundity of that one verse. Upon the life of this man. In fact congregation. Just so happens ironically. In the providence of God. That that's in our text. That we're going to preach on this evening. <laughs> Where we are in our series on Peter. But listen to this one verse. But rejoice. Peter tells his audience there in First Peter 4:13, "But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering. What's he telling them? You see how Peter is applying there? Take up your cross and follow Christ. There it is. In one summation. He's not done. The verse isn't done yet. <laughs> that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Transfiguration. He saw it. In one verse, Peter is applying what Peter had known and come to understand from Christ concerning 8:31 in Mark's Gospel, in forward, in terms of living the life of discipleship, when Jesus expounds upon that, what it looks like, and what Peter had witnessed concerning the Transfiguration. That is how the people of God live. That is how they live. They live in the full consciousness of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ by living the life of self-denial unto glorification. But we must not, must not overlook Christ's sure warning of judgment upon those, all those, who do not follow him. Everyone who is ashamed of Christ and are ashamed of his words will find that the Son of Man will be ashamed of them on the day of glorification. Yes, the day that Son of Man arrives in the glorification of the Father with his holy angels. Verse 38 of chapter 8. Even if the unbeliever would gain all power and all wealth or wealth, whatever. In this world, that person has really gained nothing. Because the son of man holds such a person accountable with all those who live out their lives in union with Adam's sin and the seed of the serpent. Jesus calls those who have given themselves over to losing their souls and their lives eternally to the earthly power and wealth as part of the present adulterous and sinful generation. No eternal glorification for them since they have refused to live as a disciple and follower of the good news in Christ. I hope all of us truly understand Christ's words about the eternal the eternal nature of discipleship. There are only two types only two types of people in the world. Only two. Those who follow are disciples of Christ and those who do not follow and are refuse to be disciples of Christ. A human being is either a disciple of Christ or not a disciple of Christ. There is no neutral ground. Well, as we have noted carefully and clearly, At this point in their lives, as the disciples follow Jesus, the disciples are not comprehending yet the messianic secret. The real pathway of Christ's mission and path of redemption for sinners. As we turn to look more closely at Christ's disciples in our text, how is Christ's interaction with them and how is Mark's depiction of them coming together from chapter 8, 31 through chapter 9, verse 13? Are they getting closer? (laughs) Are they getting closer to understanding that Jesus is revealing the messianic secret? Well, we have already examined Christ's profound admonition of Peter's rebuke, of Christ concerning suffering, being rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin, being killed, and after three days, rising again. As Christ pleads for Peter and the disciples to repent Christ rebuked Peter directly from isolating his mind upon things of men instead of things of God. And he gets right into the face of Peter. And he says to him, get behind me, Satan. Well, after the transfiguration, Peter is still not grasping the importance of the mission and person of Christ. Yes, after Christ alone is glorified with the divine radiance and splendor of God himself right before him, Peter, along with James and John, witness Elijah and Moses appearing and talking with Jesus. But neither Elijah nor Moses, are dressed in the garments of divine radiancy. Surely, Elijah and Moses do not have the same status in the history of Revelation as Christ does, and yet Peter wants to erect three-tenths three tabernacles, if you remember our last message, in equal honor to the three of them. In fact, do not overlook how Peter addresses Jesus in this situation. Peter is not comprehending Christ's true messianic identity. How does Peter address Jesus? Does Peter call him Christ? Remember, he's the one that confessed that he is the Christ. Does he call him Christ? No, look at your text. Look at verse 5. He calls him rabbi. He calls him rabbi. A teacher of whom they are his pupils, disciples. And, view, and Peter views his rabbi Jesus on the same level as the leader who brought the Israelites out of Egypt to the brink of the promised land, the one in whom the office of prophet is modeled, Moses. Peter's rabbi is also equal to the prophet Elijah, who never saw death in this world and was the Lord's servant in calling upon the name of the Lord to crush the idols and the prophets of Baal. Yes, even after the transfiguration, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. The anointed one dissolves. Dissolves on the lips of Peter. He does not call him the Christ, the Messiah, after the transfiguration. Rather, he calls him rabbi. Oh, yes. Jesus is a special rabbi. (laughs) Jesus is a special rabbi. He and his companions, James and John, have witnessed something extraordinary about him in comparison to other rabbis in Israel. In fact, Peter wants to erect three tabernacles, tents, to testify to the equality of these three figures that have been before him and Peter, James, and John. <laughs> well. Watch this, extraordinary. Who corrects Peter this time? Who corrects Peter this time? Don't miss it. In the earlier incident about Christ's path of suffering and dying for the sake of redemption, Christ rebuked Peter. Well, this time, the correction by grace comes right out of and in the midst of the glory cloud of God the Father. From within that cloud, it is Christ's heavenly Father Who will set the record straight for Peter. (laughs) He needs it. The father is going to set the record straight. This rabbi, so you call him. In front of you is actually the beloved son of the father. Beloved Son of the Father. The Father in heaven is correcting him. Who is the creator of heaven and earth? And his prophetic word, Jesus' prophetic word, is superior to Moses and Elijah. After all, he has delivered in his prophetic voice the exact path of his final work of redemption and the exact circumstances that will occur concerning his redemption, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Moreover, moreover, he has, Christ has delivered in his prophetic action his exact path to glorification and his exact decor, his decor of his final glorification. What is that decor at the final glorification? That he is the divine radiance and splendor of God himself. Neither Moses or Elijah had such an honored status. And to prove it, And to prove they don't have such an honored status. God removes. Both Elijah and Moses from the scene. And thus. The messianic son of God. Stands alone. Stands alone. Before them. Because it is only through his person and his word. Are we listening? Will fallen humanity be saved. Be saved. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God. What a glorious gospel we have. Enable us by thy spirit to treasure it in our hearts. And to live. And to walk. In that gospel. Each day. Bless us. Bless us, O Lord, to become ever more conscious of what it means to be a follower of Christ between what he has accomplished and his final glorification. Help us to live faithfully under His kingship through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.